like, hey, this guy's written all these books. He knows all about leadership. And you get up to start talking and some little preacher on the back row. I'm sure you've never experienced this before. Never. Some little preacher on the back row who's, who, who's been at like four churches in six years and no more than 30 people. And they go, well, let me tell you what we're doing at our church. Cause, uh, and then it goes on and takes all your time. You've never had that happen. Never you have to all. just tell people to sit down and shut up. No, what I say is... Um, they're paying me anyway. <laughs> like, uh, Hi, I'm John Stevens. This is Matt Russell. This and this is Pod at Mercy. Well, today Matt Russell is doing Matt Russell things. I have no idea where he is. I think he's like in Papua New Guinea. <laughs> More likely. Uh, yeah, I don't. I have no idea. Wherever he is, it's something are, important for some. People are crying. They're they're having they're, depth. They're, they're having a deep experience. Very deep. Deep transformational yeah. experiences, yeah. Matt Russell experiences. But anyway, uh, Todd Bolsinger, mm-hmm. who we've had on before, is in town working with Chapelwood on some consulting stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, do I need to like in, in, introduce Todd Bolsinger and like read his CV? No, I think we. I, think we're I mean, Todd's been with us yeah. before. If yeah. you don't know Todd Bolsinger, just Google him <laughs> and just Google Todd Bolsinger with no shirt. Yeah. There's some great pictures yeah, there. Yeah. I'm just going to tell you. I you there's not a single one there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm kidding. Yeah. Anyway, we were, um, and, I, and I was not, I was totally serious. We had a meeting this morning, mm-hmm. and I said, I just, Matt and I just did a podcast yesterday, mm-hmm. and I got nothing. So when we left breakfast, I was like, you're carrying the ball today. But then I thought, well, we have this really smart consultant, author of all these books. Why don't you just sit there and be quiet and I'll talk? <laughs> That's a good idea. Yeah, yeah, this is what I do. I get paid mostly to listen to smart people talk. No. <laughs> All right. So you said something hit you on some calls today. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about that yeah. about formation yeah. and Ash Wednesday. Yeah. You told me enough to be dangerous. Yeah. So I did a webinar this morning uh, with my colleague Mark Roberts, who runs our Third Third Initiative. It's a thing we do at the Dupree Center for Leadership, and the Third Third Initiative is all about um, helping people in the third third of life recover a sense of meaning and purpose and flourishing. And he did a whole thing on nostalgia, that nostalgia can really help people um, live a better life. It floored me because I think of nostalgia as being... Pining for the old days. Well, pining for the old days and being a problem in my work, which is to lead people into change into the future. You know, when people want the glory days, they're very resistant to the future, right? And what Mark was talking about is that there's a healthy kind of personal nostalgia that is twinged bittersweet. And he described it like, and you'll get this, like as your kids become adults and you're proud of them, you have these glimpses of these moments when you kind of wish you could go back to when they were nine, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like this beautiful, there are these beautiful kids. I mean, I don't want my kid really to go back to being nine. I like them better at, at 29. Out in the house. Right? Yeah. But, but I do long for those days and those moments. And what we're talking about is how really healthy people have a capacity to balance um, joy and longing, and that that requires a capacity for self-reflection. Hmm. And so then I spent the part of my day on two different interviews with two different uh, authors working on spiritual practices needed for leadership because it's a part of the book, a book I'm reading. And it came up again and again and again, this a capacity to be able to do really deep, vulnerable self-reflection. And I thought about it's Ash Wednesday. This is when we literally reflect on our mortality. You know, hmm. Remember you are dust and to dust you shall return. Yeah. And it's in that self-reflection that there's actually the possibility for flourishing is one of the things that Mark was talking about that I started thinking about. And I thought it'd be worth talking about. 
it's very much worth talking about. And it's <laughs> something that, so I don't know if this is in the same vein, but what, has, what I've wrestled with or thought about for a long time is this element of contemplative leadership. Hmm. And I know there's, there's a book out there or something, but I, I hadn't read it. Hmm. Yeah, because uh, all great ideas start with me and end <laughs> with me. And there is, you know. But the thought was, I, I had, when I was doing my doctor of ministry in looking at the church merger that we had done and mm-hmm. got into all this organizational culture, all this mm-hmm. systems thinking, and I started reading all these books on leadership and found that every one of them had some kind of a, of a, of a directional aspect to like personal proficiency. So if it's mm-hmm. Peter Singe, it was like personal mastery, mm-hmm. right? If it was the leadership code, it was a personal proficiency. If it was like, even in Collins, good to great, mm-hmm. when he talks about level five leaders right. and he has all these CEOs, they're like, okay, well, how do you get from level four to level five? And I think in the book he goes, I can tell you the difference between level four and level five. I can't tell you how yeah. you make that move. And I've always thought that's the gap that if we could ever figure out, yeah. and I think it's rooted in spirituality. I do too. Now, I don't think it has to be for everyone, Christian spirituality, mm-hmm. because not everybody's a Christian, but mm-hmm. if you want to be a leader, mm-hmm. you're going to have to get tied into yeah. like what's going on inside. Inside, you. right, right. There's, I think your capacity to be able to hold on to your own internal work is the most important thing. Like your capacity to acknowledge your vulnerability, acknowledge where you need help, acknowledge where um, you're not an expert, um, acknowledge where with all of your expertise and all your authority and everything that you have, there are these moments when you still show up insecure. And until you can get honest about those things, really owning your own, well, think about this, humility is related to the word humus, which is dirt or soil. Mm-hmm. I mean, remember you are dust and to dust you shall return. There which is, is why hummus tastes like dirt, exactly. by the way. <laughs> yeah, see, it's not the same thing. And I always like to separate those out. But, but, you know, but you do have the sense that there is something about what the spiritual writers call being grounded. Mm-hmm. Like, so when I was writing my book on resilience, I re- realized that the character quality that all leaders who are able to actually lead people through change, lead in the face of resistance, is they are grounded in something other than their ego's need to be a successful leader. Mm-hmm. Like there's a great paradox in there that if you really need to be successful, you'll probably be too fragile. Yeah. yeah. Collins also uses that image of the type of a, a leader that when things go wrong, mm-hmm. the the level five leaders are looking in the mirror. Right. And people that are less leaders, less, mm-hmm. I mean, self-actualized yeah. leaders, mm-hmm. when things go wrong, they're looking through a window. Yeah, yeah. And they're seeing everyone else. Mm-hmm. They're the problem. Right, 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 right. right. There's no integration of that. I think, um, what was it, Rick Warren's famous book, years ago, The Purpose Driven Life, mm-hmm. and he mm-hmm. starts out, it says, it's not about you. Mm-hmm. And I've always said, it actually is about you. I get what he's saying, yeah. that God's like the most important yep. thing yep. in your life. But man, if you think about spirituality, yep. yes, it's about, but it yep. is about you. Yep. And if you don't do the you work that you yep. need to do, you're never going to be the person who's going to be successful in mm-hmm. life. And we talk about successful, that yeah. can be defined yeah. many different ways. Yeah. But you're certainly not going to be a leader, yeah. I don't yeah. think. Well, and so then think about this. In the Christian faith, we believe that, as it says in the scriptures, that we are to be a kingdom of priests, right? Like literally there's this language. And even uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs talks about one of the great challenges of Judaism is they really believed that everybody was to become a leader. Everybody was to be an influence, that, mm-hmm. that the nation of Israel was meant to be the nation that would lead the, the humanity back to God, right? So then we start recognizing 
any of us who are in leadership, not only do we have to live into our own vulnerability, our own growth, our own responsibility, our own looking in the mirror, we got to actually create that capacity in the whole congregation. I was with one of the leading uh, writers on uh, spiritual formation today, and it was really interesting to hear her really struggle with, yeah, that's really hard. Like, like thinking about that notion of creating the capacity for depth of spiritual life in the whole congregation. And that's, I think there's an interesting challenge. But that's in that. what we need. Right. And coming out of the last couple of years, Matt and I talk about this all the time, when the flame was turned up mm-hmm. and the pressure was on, the Christ- Christianity in America did not perform well. No. When I say perform, I mean, you know what I mean. No, we didn't do well. We didn't witness. We, we were not a good badly. witness to our faith. We were not a good testimony to the difference. We behaved right? badly. Yeah, yeah. And we we ran and we just became about division mm-hmm. and partisanship and our mm-hmm. ideologies mm-hmm. or our personal opinions or whatever became more important than our yeah. faith. Our yeah. faith was not what was guiding us. Someone said to me, I don't, I don't when we were talking about this, is I've... I've I don't even know where I heard it. So if you told me this, I'm quoting Todd Bolsinger. <laughs> it said, I have seen in the past two years, many people leave their churches because of their politics. Mm-hmm. But I haven't seen anybody leave their politics because of their church. Oh, I wish I'd said that. I hadn't said you that. You didn't say I that. Didn't say that. Said, no. Todd said that. <laughs> yeah, I wish I had. You know, and, and, it's true. I, and actually, though, recently I've had several people, when I would say that, several people have come up to me and go, hey, I just want you to know. I've changed my politics because mm. of my faith. Wow. And I went, wow. Yeah. And so it's happening, yeah. but on a general yep. scale, yep. I don't think it was. You know, because I don't think we collectively in mm-hmm. American Christian churches had done yep. the discipleship like we should have. We yep. were a mile wide and an inch deep, yep. like we'd like to well, say. Well, I was thinking about this in terms of like, think of our corporate practices, right? So the things that shape us the most. Um, how often do we communicate to people? The most important practices are the things that will... Um, well, keep the church alive, keep the institution going, show up for church, make sure that you give. Nothing wrong with those things, but it, people get a message that the spiritual practices are really about making sure we have a good church here, or or they're about keeping you thriving, make sure that you take care of yourself, have a Sabbath, pray, go into silence, be calm. It's almost like we give a Christian version of the Calm app or something. <laughs> yeah. You know, How often said do we say, actually, these spiritual practices we do together so that we might be able to give our lives away for the world, like lay down our lives, be like John chapter 12, where it talks about be the seed that falls to the earth and dies and bears much fruit. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're practicing. And I think about this in terms of Ash Wednesday service tonight, you know, that I'm thrilled to be here and I intentionally came in early so I could be at that service because I didn't want to miss it because I want to be in a community and a community that I'm getting to know and love being reminded that my life is meant to be lived with the people of God in an act of service that starts with my acknowledging my need for God, my deep mortality, my deep um, dependence. Uh, my need for repentance, right? So that notion that what we do together is meant to shape us all. I think we need to keep thinking about how what we do together needs to shape us all in a way that could really be transformative. Yeah, we we for too long equated spiritual maturity with biblical knowledge yeah. or orthodoxy or yep. certain type of dog, yep. dogma or orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. And it, there, there's no spiritual, that's not spiritual maturity. Mm-hmm. And to learn about Jesus is not the same thing to walk with Jesus. Yeah, and experience the reality of our lives being hid and lost in Jesus. You know, the hard part is, I've, I've shared this before last year coming out of the summer, 
I had been in a really dark place for a long time. Most pastors I know mm-hmm. were, and some still are. Mm-hmm. And uh, the guy that I work with, my uh, call him my therapist. I don't know what he is. He's just my guy I talk to, and he's a therapist. So he's my therapist. <laughs> I guess I can. <laughs> um, the thing I said, why am I angry all the time? I'm, I'm angry about everything. Angry at people. We're talking about two people mm-hmm. out there, right? Yeah. I'm angry at people. I don't want to be around mm-hmm. people. And he said. Hey, anger because of your personality type, mm-hmm. it comes out as anger. He says, really, it's fear. Uh, he said, he said, what are you afraid of? And I'm like, I'm not answering that question. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> like, exactly. But it started me down a journey right, to start right. listening and writing down, what am I afraid of? Right, right. And once I did that exercise and shared with him, and it, it, for me, it's not life. I'm not, my life's not in danger. I don't have terminal cancer. Mm-hmm. My family doesn't. So it wasn't about that. It was more like, is the church going to fail? Am I able yeah. to lead? You yeah. know, what if I lose my job? What yeah. if all the people leave and don't give anymore? How do we, right. what, you know, what, what if it fails? Yeah. And he said, all right, now let's look at this list. What if everything on this list came true? He said, who are you? What happens to you? And it was the first time I thought, I'd be okay. Yeah, what a gift that question is, right? Yeah. Because somebody you trusted to share that with Mm -hmm. led you to the place that felt like it was the scariest thing, and then you could actually look at it and realize... I didn't even want to start it. Well, exactly. (laughs) I I mean, mean, if he hadn't nudged you, and and, and you obviously had to respond to it, which is... That's a good... I think you just gave us a really good example of what it means to be able to take it a step deeper, Mm -hmm. like to get beyond the anger, which for most of us won't even admit the anger. How many of us are actually mad, but we act like we're not mad. I'm not mad. Don't say I'm mad. You're the one like, right? Like, so to take That's it, so to take it two steps deeper and then to basically let somebody you trust lead you to that place where you could look at those fears and realize actually at the deepest level, I would be okay. I would be, I'd be okay. Yeah. The thing is, what, what, again, I'm remembering all these things and I, I'm not, I don't remember them well enough to um, attribute them properly, but mm-hmm. someone that always talks about we're scared you know, we're scared to ask certain questions because we're afraid. We're afraid. We're really more afraid of the answers. Yeah. So we won't ask those deep questions right, right. because that answer is not. We're we're just afraid of the answer, what it yeah. might be. Yeah. Um. So yeah. we just we don't ask them. Yeah. You know. I always say to people that when I'm I, this notion of being grounded, being humble, being down to earth. Um, to me, one of the most powerful passages in the scripture is at the very beginning of Jesus's ministry when he goes to be baptized by John. Right, so uh, you remember the text. He's he's goes to be baptized by John. John recognizes him. Nobody else knows who he is, and it says at this moment, at this time, at what time? Well, before he's done a sermon, not preached a word, not taught a word, not done a miracle, not cast out a demon, not confronted a power. He's not done anything before he's done anything at all. He goes to the river, and a dove comes in a voice that says in. Eugene Peterson's translation is, you are the pride of my life. And I just, I think, you know, the other, the traditional translation is, this is my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased, right? So to think about this, how many of us know that before we've done anything, God's already calls us beloved, child is pleased and is proud of us. And how much different it would be to be able to go into difficult things we have to face, hard decisions we have to make, knowing that at our core we already are that. We're not trying to earn that. Um, I, I think that's a game changer. Most of us world. bypassed the river. We went straight to the wilderness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And all we've ever heard is, well, if you really are, 
yeah. who you say you are, if you really yeah. are that good, if you really are that talented, if you really think you yeah. are, have all the capacity that you do, well then show it. And it's performative. Faith mm -hmm. is also performative. And we bring all that stuff into church. Mm -hmm. You know, we show for each other. Yeah, how many times you get into, I can't remember, there was one of these things like where they bring somebody like you in. It's like, hey, this guy's written all these books. He knows all about leadership. And you get up to start talking and some little preacher on the back row, I'm sure you've never experienced this before. Never. Some little preacher on the back row who's, who, who's been at like four churches in six years and no more than 30 people. And they go, well, let me tell you what we're doing at our church. Cause, uh, and then it goes on and takes all your time. You've never had that happen. Never you have to just tell people to sit down and shut up. No, what I say is... Um, they're paying me anyway. <laughs> like I think I'm. This is you, if that's how you want to spend your time and your money. I, I'll because this guy I'm is here. willing to tell you what he knows <laughs> right? anytime yeah. you want. Yeah, and right? it's and he's free and you're paying <laughs> me. Free. So go ahead. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, I, it, I can't. I can't even tell you how many times I've seen that. But like. One of the things, the reason I pulled this up mm -hmm. is because I've, I've wrestled with some of this stuff before. Mm -hmm. When when you go, like, I think about, this is years ago, like Peter Singe's Fifth Discipline, he calls mm -hmm. it personal mastery. Mm -hmm. And he says it's it's not just learning, but it's about growth. Mm -hmm. And he says people with high levels of personal mastery are continually expanding yeah. their ability to create and grow in life. Yeah, yeah so think about Paul saying... Um, Paul, who had like the best resume you could have, right? Oh, yeah. Right. He has the he has the equivalent of the Ivy League res resume in first century Judaism, right down to um, most zealous, most committed, the right? best mentor, right. and teacher. best mentor out of the best school, mm -hmm. most committed, number one person, zeal, nobody challenges. And he says, "This is rubbish compared to continuing on to ultimately become like Jesus in His death." Like just, I mean, think of this, this whole theme. And what he says is he says, forgetting what's behind and pressing on. Some of us hear that verse and we go, oh, see, we're not supposed to be nostalgic and look back. No, no, no. Forgetting the things you've accomplished so that you're not living on those things and instead pressing on with new learning. Like when I, when I work with uh, pastors, I'll often say, you've got to overcome your own expert expectation. People think you're the expert. You think you have to be the expert. And in some ways you are, you have a master of divinity. Like it sounds like a superhero, right? In some, there are things we know that are different. We, we do think, I mean, I always remind anybody who's a pastor, you know, it's true that most people, there are more people who have a fear of speaking in front of people than they do a fear of death. So just think at any funeral, there's a number of people there who'd rather be the dude in the box than the guy in the pulpit. You stand up every day and you do that. People That's think like that, stuff you and I can't even relate. Exactly, to. right? So, so it's like a superpower in front of many people. So pretty soon, they're all treating you like you're a superhero, and you start believing your own press clippings. Well, I've got to show up as if I'm, you know, completely bulletproof. And and it's you actually see it in Second Corinthians, where you know the whole the whole story, the mosaic story of Moses coming down from the mountains <laughs> and keeping the veil on, because the veil that was put on because he'd seen the face of God and they couldn't see the radiance of God. Well, in what we have in first in second Corinthians is him keeping the veil on longer. His face wasn't radiant anymore, but he kept mm -hmm. it on so that it could appear as if he was still holy. Mm -hmm. So we with unveiled faces, it says, seeing the glory of the Lord reflected in a mirror, we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Again, our vulnerability, our taking off our masks, our willingness to ask for help, our 
willingness to say to our congregation, we're in the middle of this thing and we're going to learn together and I'm going to learn right along with you. I'm going to be the chief learning officer instead of the chief yeah. executive officer. Yeah. And I think the, I think the, I've, I've seen that here hmm. in leading Chapelwood. I, I, I go through this little litany that I came in 2014 and we had in 2015, the Supreme court, you know, legalized same sex marriage in every, all 50 States. That kind of blew everything up. You know, there was controversy, there was struggle. Then there was the United Methodist denomination in 2016 and the general conference. They delayed it to 2019 and 2017. We had Harvey, you know, we've had floods, we've had pestilence and frogs and locusts and, and diseases, <clears throat> pandemics. Yeah. And then we and had a 2019 um, general conference and then we had a pandemic and now we have another potential denominational fissure and all along the way, was oil economy has yeah. crashed twice, yep. you know, here in Houston. Right. And I think to myself, I think what has helped people here is that the willingness that I've had to to be vulnerable and authentic mm -hmm. and say, I'm having a hard time. Yeah. yeah. It, it, and, and I was taught in seminary, you don't put yourself in the sermon. Mm. You don't want to make it about you. Right. But to like, I was told, you, know, you don't put, you don't tell anything about yourself. Huh. Yeah. Because that makes it about you. Yeah. So learning how... To, uh, um, I had a professor say to me, um, if you're not self-centered, you will center yourself. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. So there's one thing to be self-centered, meaning um, meaning I'm going to... Um, I'm going to I'm going to be as centered as I possibly can, which means to me it means I'm going to be grounded, I'm going to be I'm going to, when I open that text, that text has to speak to me first. It starts with me. I'm going to be receiving everything I possibly can. Then when I stand up in front of the congregation and I tell a true story, it's not because I'm trying to make it about me. It's because there's no way I can tell this story without acknowledging my need to hear that story. I mean, so I mean, I was very aware that when when I was leading Ash Wednesday services and I'm in a beautiful place in my life where I don't have to lead, right? Mm -hmm. So the very first person to receive ashes was me hmm. before I gave them to anybody else because I needed to hear, remember you are dust and to dust you will return before I turned to a congregation, including like, I remember putting the ashes on a man who had terminal cancer and would die before, new, before the next Christmas on an older woman, you know, smudging the makeup that she put on because yeah. she was so self-conscious and and then on a baby, like didn't matter where we were in the lifespan. I really felt like for me to be able to do that act, I needed to receive it first. And everybody saw me receive it. And in many ways, when you stand up and tell your own stories of your own vulnerability, what you really want to do is do it in such a way that you're saying, I'm just like you. Mm -hmm. I just happen to, I'm doing what you would do if you were up here giving testimony to this text. You would yeah. have to talk about your own brokenness too. And it should, it, 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 it has to point back. Point back. To Jesus yeah. and, and, and our faith. This is and the scriptures. This is, and I yeah. think that's that's the thing when you when you bring yourself into it and, and admit your troubles, you do connect. What was funny is when I was going through a hard time, mm. there was like <clears throat> a guy in the church. And when I kind of came out of it, I said, I just feel so much better. He goes, yeah, I can tell. Mm. And I said, well... Could you tell I was having a hard time? He goes, yeah, you're having a hard time. It was really depressing because I was fine. <laughs> and I'm looking at you going, what the hell, dude? Come on. I mean, and it's like, so now it's like, great. Yeah. I'm so glad. I said, well, you know, a lot of people were not in a good spot. He goes, right. yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but he was good. But, but he, he didn't connect. Right. But there were so many other people yeah. that when I, when I shared publicly that yeah. I was working with a therapist, that I talked yeah. with somebody. Yeah. So many people came out of the woodwork. Oh, Thank yeah. you for saying yeah. that. Yeah.
It well, destigmatizes oh. that like I need help or I'm not willing yeah. to go help. Some people started going to see somebody. Yeah, yeah I've often said that um, when, uh, because of my own family background and early parts of our marriage, I've probably had more therapy than any therap- any pastor I know. Like I've had, I said, you'll never outdo me. I've had, I'm, I'm, I'm hours and hours ahead of you. And I've had a spiritual director and I've had coaches and I never lead without at least having one of those in my life. Mm-hmm. I mean, I came into town and saw one of my mentors. First thing I did when I got here was had, you know, time I know I ran one of my mentors. Yeah. And, and, and really we have a ongoing relationship where every month I come before him and I know this, he's a busy man, he's a godly man. He doesn't waste time. It would be silly for me to show up and try to impress him. Mm-hmm, yeah. Like the only reason this is valuable is that I can show up and say, I actually need your help on this, mm. or I need your prayers on this, or I need your thoughts on this. And that be, has become a profoundly important relationship in my life. I always remember in, in Roberta Bondi's book about the Desert Fathers that she's, you know, she talks about how they, you would say, love is the way of the Christian life, and humility mm. is how you achieve it. Nice. Oh. It's all about Humility. Humility oh. is the way. It's the, yeah. And this is the way yeah. um, to get to love, to make actually yeah. love work. That's beautiful. Say that again. Love. love love, is the way of, well, love is the purpose of the Christian life. life. I mean, love is the, yeah. And humility is the, the way, way that you there. achieve it. That's beautiful. That's really it's good. Bondi. It's Bondi. Yeah, yeah, no, she's amazing. Really no, 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 she's amazing. But I don't really say anything that's all that special, that's, but that's really cool. I remember a lot of things. Yeah. That's, all, that's yeah. my only, only gift, yeah. I guess. Um, but yeah, I mean, like when you think about, like, I remember reading Edgar Schein, who's like the mm-hmm. godfather of organizational culture and, mm-hmm. and leadership. And he talks about how you model through what it is that you value, beliefs, your values. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what do you pay attention to? What do you measure? Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you control on a regular right. basis? Right. So there's a whole list of things. Yeah. How do you react to critical incidents? Yeah. This, when I think about like an Ignatian examine, right. like a morning examine, the process that you've used in the surveys that we did with the congregation, mm-hmm. in many ways to me was like an Ignatian they, they examine. They were examined. That's yeah. exactly what they're built on. And at the end of the day, it's, uh, it's sort of an examination of the day mm-hmm. and really about my inner relationships. How did mm-hmm. I respond mm-hmm. in certain ways? Uh, to certain people that, yeah. and where, where did I bring Christ into that in a good way? And where did I fail? Yep. Yep. And I'm not proud of myself yeah. for responding the way yeah. that I did. Well, the, the perfect examine is to me, the central spiritual practice that I use with leaders. It's the very first one. And the reason for that is teach, it teaches us how to be reflective and to do it every day means I'm not going to go more than one day without asking the Lord to search me and know my heart. You know, so I start thinking about stuff like, okay, Lord, show me who I overlooked today because I was too busy. Like, <laughs> like, remind me of when I was checking my phone or trying to impress someone and I missed someone who was trying to talk to me. Like, show me where I'm so absorbed in what I'm doing that I'm missing what you wanted to show me. Mm-hmm. Like, those kind of, like, that kind of thing is really important to kind of interrupt my autopilot, as I call it. And what's interesting about the Edgar Schein and stuff is that whole generation of leadership people, which you know you and I both have read a lot, they had a tendency to think about leadership as like an engineering, like a factory. Like here's how you engineer change. Yeah. But they were drawn into these deeper things. They couldn't keep it. They like they couldn't keep it there. That's that's, that's my point. That's why because I read all these books yeah. from from my perspective, from a spiritual perspective. Yeah. I was reading all this secular organizational yep. stuff from MIT or Harvard yep. at, or University of Michigan. And I'm looking at it and they all go down this road and they can't help but end up They in can't help places. but in there. I mean, like the the the, the Dave Ulrich, uh, the leadership code, he, he looks at it and he goes, 
his book was really fascinating for people who like leadership. Are you familiar with that? You familiar I'm not as much. No. So it's it's a book I stumbled across a long uh-huh. time ago, and he did he tried to do this uh, experiment, this measurable experiment around leadership because you're like oh the reason I know this is you told me this once before. yeah I told so you say it again that's and why so, I'm like, I know it I don't so think he it. he he went out and they studied like all these top executive CEOs mm-hmm. and all these mm-hmm. things and basically asked the question like how much of leadership is transferable among proficient I mean a uh, industry right yeah. so you're in finance or you're in this or you're in that it doesn't matter and consistently they're all like it's around it's probably somewhere between 60 70 percent hmm. that you you could go anywhere if you're a good leader right. that's transferable right. and i'm like wow that's pretty good yeah. the rest of the stuff is technical specification right. Right. and so he goes okay what is the 60 percent and he broke it down into five categories uh-huh. and two of the categories were around like your own personal mm-hmm. um, growth and two were developing other people, other people. right so right. it's like I have to develop the team I have, and I have to build future leadership. Yeah, something we're talking about here at Chapwood. Yeah. Yeah. But the one that was interesting is so it's like a box, and in the center is a circle, and the circle in the center is what he calls personal proficiency. Hmm. He says who you are becomes a key predictor of what you can help others to become. Yeah. And when you have personal insights into yourself, you will be able to lead others. And so here are the things that he said: people who are personally proficient practice clear thinking rise above the details, they know themselves, Hmm. they tolerate stress, they demonstrate learning agility, they tend to their own character and integrity, Hmm. they take care of themselves, and they have personal energy and passion. And this is a guy, this is a secular book, University of Michigan, research, huge research project. And this is what he finds in all of these people. And I'm thinking, man, and he puts that in the center of the four quadrants. Right. Because he's like, this is the most important part. I'm like, that's spirituality. Right, exactly. That's and, con- well, contemplation. Well, and you start really, it's, it is, it reminds us that we really, as humans, we really are meant to flourish. We're meant to grow. Well, you know, even Jesus grew in wisdom and you know, wisdom and knowledge and in favor with God and humans, right? <laughs> we are meant to develop. Um, things that are healthy keep flourishing. They keep growing. Yeah. And so to recognize that even in these places where we wouldn't expect it, it keeps showing up, then for me it creates, again, the challenge of, so in the church, the place that actually is here to help people be formed in the image of Christ, to be, God, to be Christ's body in the world, why are we so struggling with forming people? Yeah. I mean, that should be what we do. It's best. yeah, it's it's when well, I've told you told you this before that um almost every single time I've spoke during the pandemic, um I would talk about underlying issues. I'd ask people that pastors, usually leaders or denominational leaders, what what did the pandemic raise up for you? Like like if you if you think of it as being revelatory, it revealed what was already there. The number one thing that it brings is a crisis of discipleship, like that we. We were not as Christian as we wanted to yeah, be. Yeah, that's we exactly were, yeah. what we what we yeah. found. I yeah. think that's across the board. Yeah. Um, and 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 so then the the thing is, how do you? I was going to say, how do you invite people, entice people mm-hmm. into this deeper? I think what's happening now is we look back. There's no church I know that's back to 100 percent in person mm-hmm. from what they were before. Yeah. I don't know if they say they are. I don't think they're telling the truth. Yeah. And if they say they're doing more now. People say, oh, but with online, we're reaching more people than we've ever reached in the history of whatever. That also probably is not true, but I'll give you that, right? It's online. 
what I found though is that the people who are coming and the people who are watching online mm-hmm. are people who are engaged. Yeah. They're people who are hungry. They're people who they figured out mm-hmm. they didn't have what they needed. Yeah. We didn't have what we needed. And I think it's important as a church to say, we didn't prepare you. We didn't do a good job. I didn't do yeah. a good job. Yeah. We're going to do better. Yeah. We're going to talk about things that matter. Yeah. That's why you got a sense when you did the survey because it's been so much about formation, yeah. so much about oh. depth. Oh yeah. And so people who are coming here are like, this is what I want this to be about. Mm-hmm. So if they got mad because of a, a political leaning or this, which you know, or, or a partisan thing, or an ideological thing, or a mask thing, or a vaccine thing, or whatever, they don't have anything to do with that. That's not the kind yeah. of church they want to be a part of. Yeah. And it's 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 risky. It's but man, the people are, those people are engaged, yeah. and engaged people serve, engage mm-hmm. people, give and contribute, yeah. engage people, yeah. pay attention. It's so different now when you're preaching and you're preaching, yeah. you're looking at these people, and they're like, yeah. Well, it's I think it may be for many of us who are our age, the first time we've actually seen I mean, our age. Well, like probably, thirty-two. <laughs> yeah, really. So my age. Uh, <laughs> it may be the first time in my lifetime I've actually seen what I would call large-scale pruning, like healthy, like you know the the vine dresser prunes the vines. Mm-hmm. So when you start thinking about many of us, our egos were caught up in how big, what's our numbers, what's the number, how how many people can we put into a seats in a pew, how big a buildings can we have. All of a sudden, you start realizing that bigness did not turn into fruitfulness. Mm-hmm. I was saying to somebody using a, a wine analogy, I said, you know, the best winemakers in the world don't care about being the biggest winemaker of the world. Of course. They care about having the best fruit to create the best product. The best oak barrel. Yeah, right, right. So then you start thinking, what would it be like for us to think about how do we create really healthy fruit? And one of the things you'll learn is it's usually in pretty arid soil. Yeah. Where the, we were where talking the about this because when we went right, to Napa right. in October and I was talking to you about yeah. it and you're like, oh, yeah, I'm working on a, yeah. like your next project yeah. or whatever. I was like, oh, that's what I'm working on. I was like, oh, good, I can help. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because when you go up into the, is it the Bacchus or the Maikamas? Mm-hmm. You come out of Napa and you get up in there, they dry farm all those grapes. All dry. And they're spread out, you know, they're, and he's talking about how deep the root systems go in. Yeah. And I'm thinking, dry, you don't water these things? Yeah. What do you get? He's like, the stress is the fruit. Yep. I get better fruit. Yep. It's one of the reasons why people think Texas will someday be a really good wine industry. Go. We're the best at everything. <laughs> it's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of time. That's actually pretty good. Yeah. Um, you you sent me something. Right? I know it came from you, and it was interesting as I was looking. It was that these key leadership principles. Yeah. I found these um, interesting. The first one you have is leadership is learned while leading. Yeah. It's one of the hardest parts. This goes back to the vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Is that people like you and I. We went off and did degrees. We come back, we thought, okay, those degrees are going to help. Well, all the organizational leadership degrees that you did, I'm sure you did a very fine project. I teach doctoral students all the time. It was very fine. Yeah. yeah. What happens they is got you... got published. Yeah. There's one right. copy. There you go. There yeah. You go. yeah. You realize all that is just filling your tool chest. Mm-hmm. You don't actually learn how to swing the hammer or figure out how to build something until you're in it. Yeah. And the hardest part about that for most leaders is, I mean, leaders are really formed in the leading. You're not formed until you're facing the challenge. Because of that, the hard part about it is you become a leader right after you were good at something that was not leading. Oh my gosh, think about how many 
pastors, you're like a really good preacher. We should make you a pastor. You're a great teacher. Yeah, as if anything, like literally, like I really worked hard at being a good preacher and teacher. That had almost nothing to do with what it meant for me to lead a congregation, to love them dearly, to pray for them, mm -hmm. to um, disappoint them, right? There's a whole... The, the skill sets don't necessarily transfer. So you have to be in the middle of it. And that's one of the reasons why even for a congregation, we think... I, I was I was talking to somebody today who was talking about um, how we are formed in the crucible of ministry. And I said, and so many leaders I know think our job is to keep our people out of the crucibles. Yeah. Instead of, what if we were to actually say this world is like a crucible it will shape you there will be challenges so we're going to walk with you in them and we're not going to protect you from them we're actually going to bear the pain so that it'll shape us mm -hmm. we so many people look at us even as leaders and say you know the church should be the place where i never have to deal with these kinds of questions actually the church is to be the safe place where you learn to deal with these questions <laughs> like there's a difference between shielding our people <clears throat> and actually um, leading them and teaching them in the middle of it. Well, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Oh, man. man. And on everybody, you know. Yeah. And that's, the, I think sometimes people, when you have a, a, a shallow discipleship yeah. or a shallow faith, you know, yeah. I'm Christian, I believe in God, but I don't really mm -hmm. like put any time and effort into yeah. it. Then you think it's like, well, this, I got that to protect me from all this. So yeah. then when something horrible happens, you know, the the response is, I hate God, I'm angry with God, why did you do this? Because, again, I don't deserve this yeah. because I've tried to do things the right way. Yeah. Well, you've probably had the experience of preaching a sermon that is a passage that is convicting. It's meant to be. It's meant to be troubling. It's meant to be disorienting. You know, Walter Brueggemann, you know, afflict the comfortable, right? People will come out of there and tell you, oh, I don't come to church for that. Like, and there is a place, I had a whole conversation with, with, a, with a leader who said, you know, there is an entire tradition, particularly in like the white dominant mainline church, um, evangelical church, that, that the point of the church is to make you comfortable. The whole, you know it's the Holy Spirit because I have peace like a river. You don't know it's the Holy Spirit that troubles the waters, as it says in the African-American spirituals. Mm -hmm. Like it's the Holy Spirit that actually stirs stuff up, troubles you. Mm -hmm. There's a good example of like how our spirituality gets to become deeper the more we're engaged with those whom sometimes we're not even talking to. Well, now right? you're getting into issues like people who are marginalized mm -hmm. people, people who have been oppressed, people yeah. have been... You look at these stories you see coming out of Ukraine, yeah. these Russian Orthodox Christians, yeah. and they're in a basement of a church yeah. in a shelter in Poland. And they go down there to meet somebody and the film crew to like interview somebody and they're like, oh, they're singing down there. Yeah. And they found a piano in the basement and they yeah. just started singing yeah. hymns and songs yeah. from their church. Right. Ukrainian people who have been dislocated out of right. their thing. It's like that faith is there in yeah. that moment for them that's transforming them. Yeah. I, I, I do think there, I, one little story I was doing, our church wanted to do some church planting. We thought, okay, we want to make sure we, we plant churches out of our congregation. And we started talking about it and we all got, we started getting nervous. All our folks were like, well, how many people could we take out of our church to plant a new one? You know, what, what's it mean to be healthy? You know, what do we need to do about that? We were very nervous. Well, I ended up then getting invited to go speak in the Philippines and I met some missionaries from Thailand and they were church planters. And I said, let me ask you this. When you guys are planting churches, 
How important is it to make sure that the mother church is strong before she gives birth to a new congregation? He goes, very important. This is why we will not plant a new church until we have 30 baptized and confirmed Christians. I went, 30? Yeah, once we have 30, then we'll talk about birthing a new church. I said, so 1,500 is enough. <laughs> like, like, I remember, like, like I'm realizing we were panicking because of our idea, right? Yeah. The difference between they're thinking, yes, like 30 good Christians is enough to start thinking about starting a new church. Oh my gosh, we couldn't even, I couldn't even imagine that. You know? uh, yeah, I mean, I, I remember it, I was an associate at a large church years ago, and we talked about this whole concept of starting a church or sending people away, and it was like, uh, we finally, you know, the leadership and the pastor was like, yeah, we're not going to do that. Yeah. We're not going to send 20 of our families. Yeah. We had... Thousands of you know, right. come people coming on Sunday. Right, right. Like, we can't. I'm not sending twenty yeah. families. Yeah. Like wow, that's. Yeah. And that's when we come back to the Jim Collins. Like okay, so then as leaders, we look at ourselves and say, so what did we disciple those people into to make those decisions? What was it that we formed them for? We formed them to make those decisions, right? Your system is perfectly designed for the results it's getting. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we formed them. So we now to come and bring it back and say, okay, my life needs to be formed in a way that. I would raise up the kinds of people that we see. In and the think Ukrainian of the level zone. of formation in depth. Someone, yeah. if they go to a revitalization oh. project at another campus, or oh. they go to help start or birth yeah. a new church, um, you know, we've we've done that a couple of times here. We, you know, we're a Methodist church. We gave birth to an Episcopalian church. It's one of my favorite stories that I've <laughs> by the way, in the consulting process. I, I love yeah, that we, story. We birthed an Episcopalian church. Yeah. It wasn't what we set out to do, but... Which is what the Spirit does. The, the Spirit, Spirit goes does. in a different And ways. they're doing well. And, yeah. you know, we've tried another one, and, and that that church now uh, is, is gone off, and they're meeting together and doing their thing that mm-hmm. they do. And, and we lost people that were... Chapwood people mm-hmm. that went to be with this new church. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the people who went to do that are finding depth and growth in their own life that they probably would not have had had they yeah. stayed here in that yeah. same way. So yeah. I, I mean, I look at it and think that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And we shouldn't be afraid of it. No. But we are. And I, but I think also the value, like when you think about, um, you know, Sean talks about what is it that you measure? I recently had a conversation with our bishop. And we were having, we were talking about. It. He's like, "What is? What do we measure? What's the measure of viability of success? What's mm-hmm. the measure of health? What's the measure of vitality? Yeah. What do we measure? Because you know, he, he's like, he's like, we got to, we got to measure something. We got to, yeah. you got to measure things, but you yeah. have to know what it is to measure. Yeah. Yeah. And as I was talking with him, I mean, I think it's, I, I said, it's not the numbers. Yeah, it can't be the numbers. I said, those are still important." I said, right now, the easiest low-hanging fruit is the money. Yeah. Are people still giving? Yeah. I said, but I don't know that that's the right answer. Well, so here's the interesting thing. One of the things that my researchers, so I, I, run, I lead a research center, and I'm not a researcher. I told you right? he was really smart. Right, right. right. So, but one of the things my research person said is, you start a research project trying to figure out all the questions you want to ask, mm-hmm. and you gather way more data than the questions you have, because you have no idea later what you're going to need. So they start asking questions like, you know, should we ask this? Should we ask this? The answer is always yes. Get as much get as much information as possible. Well, I think we're in that moment with measurements. So I'm I'm working with an, another annual conference of Methodists in another part of the country, and they decided that over Chris over Easter 
50 churches were going to get together and commit to trying to have 50 new members in their church during the Easter season, like and Methodists, like it's like Presbyterians saying we're going to go reach new people, right? I said, they said, so we're all just we want something to rally around that is not just about the church falling apart, but like we're really going to give ourselves to this goal. And so I was, I coached one of the persons who's leading it, and I said, so here's what I want you to do though: don't at the end of it say, did we hit our goal. Instead, at the end of it, say, so what are all the things we learned? Yeah. Because whether or not 50 churches get 50 people or not, it's not nearly as important as figuring out stuff like, hey, we found out that people come to this kind of stuff. We found out that people in our church don't know how to invite anybody. We found out that our whole church, nobody knew who to invite because they're they're all in the church. Nobody like, knows like, anyone who's exactly, not a church member. Right? So all of a sudden you realize that knowledge is way more important. Yeah. Like. What you are trying, what you learn is going to be even way more important than what you're looking for. I think it's true in, in business, any type of leadership. It's organizational learning mm-hmm. or congregational learning. And it's like you want to be a learning organization. If you're going to be a learning organization, you're going to have to engage in trial and error. Mm-hmm. There's only two ways you learn things. Yeah. You find some models and you imitate them or trial and error. Yeah. And if you're going to trial and error, you're going to err. Yeah. Yeah, that's and why it's called trial and, and error. error. Yeah, yeah. It's not trial and success. Yeah. It's trial yeah. and error. Yeah. Because because when you try, <laughs> you're gonna fail more often than you're gonna succeed. Yeah. But it's not wise that we always say, well, when you try and you fail, it's not. And uh, in in learning, when you think about organizational learning, personal learning, it's like if I attempt to set out, if I set out to do something and I accomplish it. I still need to ask questions. Why did it work? Yeah, why did it work? Why was yeah. this successful? Yep. Yep. And then I have to codify it. Yeah. I have to be able to share it with myself to remember or mm-hmm. someone else. If I try something and I fail, this we we ask questions about that. We do the the autopsy. Hmm. But we, we rarely do it if we try something yeah. and it's successful. We go, Oh great, that worked. Yeah. Well, how did it work? I don't know. Well, notice the prayer of examine <laughs> asks you to do both. What are my consolations? Where did I experience God's presence? Where was I alive? Where did I see you, God? Where did I respond to your nudge, your spirit? Okay, what were my desolations? Where did I miss you? Where was I? Where, where did I lose energy? Where did I lose? What sucks the life out? Yeah, what what enervates you? Right, your the practice of spiritual reflection is where we started this whole conversation. That I think is really best exemplified in the examine. Teaches us how to be entrepreneurial, creative, mm-hmm. um, humble curious, open, all these qualities that we really do need in a world that is so rapidly changing and where we're not producing the fruit so far that we wanted. Yeah. One of them that you said is, um, well, you say never waste a crisis. That's <laughs> applicable nowadays. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because crises reveal underlying issues yeah. that we may not have known or may not have had the will to confront before the crisis. Yeah. Yeah, that's the the biggest part. This is actually comes from Roll Heifetz and Marty Linsky, who uh, wrote co-wrote an article called um, "Leadership in a Permanent Crisis." It's a uh, Harvard Business Review article in two thousand nine. Uh, the whole idea was that they sat down and said, "Hey, um, in the first nine years of this century, of this millennium, we had two big crises. We had nine eleven and two thousand eight economic crisis. Yeah. Imagine a world where you have two major crises in a decade." They had no every year. Yeah, exactly. They had no idea 2020 (laughs) was coming, right? It's every year now. Right. And so, but what they point to is the advantage of a crisis is 
if you survive it, which at first, the way you survive it literally is you it's, come together. It's to survive right? it. Yeah, you just come together, support it, survive. Just like going to an emergency room, get everybody around you, survive. Then the good leaders learn to learn from it by looking at the underlying issues. And so I often say, like my father, he's 79 years old. He has several heart, the heart conditions that make COVID really, really dangerous. As soon as the thing hit, we're like, Dad, you have to stay away from people. The wrong DoorDash guy without a mask, yeah. you're dead. He survived it. We're thrilled. Well, what he realized was he had to go pay attention to his heart that was going. Mm-hmm. By the time, I mean, we he needed a valve replacement that I don't think he would have looked. I think he would have overlooked it in this every mm-hmm. day. The crisis made him much more aware that he had to pay attention to his health. Next thing we know, we're in a place where we can say, you've got to look at that valve replacement, Dad, and he had that done. Thank now God. this is going to sound really, really bad, and people might really be upset. I'm totally serious. What's happening in Ukraine with Russia invading mm-hmm. is a horrible, horrific travesty. It's evil. Mm-hmm. But it is a level of a crisis I don't know that our, our whole world has seen in a long time. The pandemic was, but the pandemic was different. I mean, we're watching people die every day. Yeah. I think the way it's bringing the world to there, I think this is going to fundamentally, this is going to be a fundamental shift hmm. in the history of, of our world. Oh. I, it's got to be. Yeah. Because when have we ever seen this happen where the entire yeah. free world now, and even parts of not free, yeah. are coming together yeah. and saying, we're, and, and you know, we've done sanctions yeah. before. Well, kind of. Well, I think there's two parts about that that I'm, I mean, I, I'm not an expert in this either, but I'm, I'm not either. But, but I'm part of what I'm observing is there is this notion that there's this thing where in a world where we're not quite sure what you, what you critique and what you don't and who has a right to say this or that and who do you trust or not, you look at something like that and you go, that's wrong. Yes. Right, okay, so there we can draw a line. The, the post-truth right. world, <laughs> right. truth-telling right. in the post-truth right. world, and, right. and all right. facts yeah. are alternative yeah. facts. You get your own yeah. facts. Yeah. Now everyone can look yeah. at this. Yeah. Invading a country that says, hey, please leave us alone. We're, we're actually doing fine. Um, we, we, you're invading us, and please don't. And you're a huge bully, and please don't. And they are. And then seeing the level of courage, both the faith oh we talked gosh, about yeah. and the courage of the leadership to say, we are going to stand here. It's, it's caused people to come together around that. And when you think, if you're a leader, and I think a politician, politician, if, if you think American Christianity didn't mm-hmm. do well in mm-hmm. the last two years, just look at American politicians, mm-hmm. all of them. Yeah. I put them all in the yeah. same pile. And how can you be a leader and a politician and look at this guy who was a comedian on TV who played a teacher who became president of the country. That was the TV show. And he runs for president and he gets elected and you got, this guy's going to be horrible. Yeah. I mean, he's going to be horrible. It'd be like, you know, I don't know. It's like like, make a Jerry Seinfeld president. Somebody said it'd be if Stephen Colbert became president. That's (laughs) what we'd have, right? And 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 you're looking at it and you're going, this is not going to work. This guy just did. Now you're looking like, man, this guy has got something that nobody thought he had. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that when people ask you, when you've been a leader in very difficult situations and they want you to go back and do the autopsy on it, you know, a lot of times people write these books about all these great things they had and all that. You're just doing it. You're in the midst of it and you're not really, you don't have a a strategic processing Mm -hmm. in the moment. Yeah. You know, there's people in their homes stuck in a flood or a hurricane and you got to go get them. 
Yeah. Who has a boat? Let's can we can we just go do that? You don't yeah. think about it. You don't process it. And what this guy's doing. I mean, when they say, "Yeah, I need ammunition. I don't need a ride <laughs> out of here." It's been really remarkable. It, it's in, to inspire. I hope it really has an impact on mm-hmm. American politicians, mm-hmm. all of them, to look at this and go, "Well, you know what? Why are we so petty about so many mm-hmm. things? Always, you know, always attacking each other, no matter what. Just the other side, mm-hmm. the other side, the other side, the other side." And look at this guy. And you're like, that's the kind of people that we need. Yeah, it's really is inspiring, isn't he? Yeah. I think so. I think so. Um, all right, we're almost done. I was thinking about which one of these other ones that I really like. I like them all, mm. but they're all my favorites, but mm. some are more favorite. Yeah. What does it mean where you stand is where you sit? Um, I think we have tended to undervalue how much the culture around us, our location, where we are, impacts us. Um, we are really affected by uh, you know, the world around us, the culture we're in, the community we're in. I mean, somebody said, you know, if you put a cucumber in the right fluid, it becomes a pickle, <laughs> right? Right. Like, so we're surrounded by stuff that shapes us. And I think sometimes we get a little blind to that. Mm-hmm. We tend to think, we forget how profoundly influenced we are by culture. I think about this. I, I served in a beach community for 17 years. Yeah. I and, and what was so interesting about this is I'm not a beach kind of guy. I'm from California, but I never <laughs> it was around the beach very much. I moved to a beach community and I realized about four years in that my entire wardrobe had changed. Oh, yeah. Right? Now I'm wearing all the stuff I see everybody wear. And, and what's cr- interesting is I, I had been in Pasadena and then I moved back to Pasadena after 17 years and I realized I have all of these beach shirts that I never wear anymore. Clothes don't work in Pasadena. Because they don't work there. And, and it, wasn't, it wasn't conscious, me going, oh, I'm going to fit. It was like, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wear like this. And so you start realizing your culture really shapes you. Yeah. And so one of the reasons why, um, and I see this because I, I get to work across the, I mean, the spectrum. And I'm really aware that it, you can become, that you have to become more self-aware of the way that your culture tends to reinforce itself. So you need to have be both grateful and aware of that, and you also need to be aware that we need to be exposed to more cultures. It's why it's why travel opens our eyes. Yeah. Why having friends that are different than us. Um, Ronald Heifetz famously said, "You know, you don't actually change by spending all your time looking at yourself. You change by encountering difference." And it's it's one of the most powerful parts about my job these days. After. 17 years of being in a deep dive in one community that I loved, and I love the depth of that, and it was a right calling. Today, I, I talk to people all over the spectrum. I said, I've, you know, I'm right now, I work with three different types of Presbyterians, three different types of Baptists, two different types of Episcopalians, soon to be two different types of Methodists, <laughs> right? right? Maybe more than right, 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 right. right. I mean, I, I, I went from working, being at a Baptist church in Arlington, Texas, to work with a group of Roman Catholic missionaries. They have a, they're a monastic order that does church planting in Appalachia. That was all in one week. Mm-hmm. I've worked with the Salvation Army and the UCC, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, and the ELCA. I, I literally talk to people who don't talk to each other. And when I go into their world, their worlds for them are dear to them, right? Like, like just going to any place in the country and just raise a question about barbecue. You know the difference, right? Immediately, oh, yeah. right? Texas, Kansas, 
Tennessee. It, really, in Texas, it's right? all about brisket. Right, right. And you're not in really South seeing, Georgia, it's all pork. And people are really, they love their culture. It's dear to them. Mm-hmm. And it also shapes them in unconscious ways. Mm-hmm. So one of the parts we have to do as leaders is we have to help people pay attention to their culture and also be aware that your culture can enculturate you into ways that, that might keep you... By the way, I spent the first um, 46 years of my life. When did I move? Oh, 2014. Mm-hmm. 44 years of my life in Georgia. Texas barbecue is better. <laughs> Don't tell people from Georgia. Your secret is safe. The barbecue places in Texas, when you go into like everything's bigger, it's like you have eight meats to choose from, and lunch is like pick four. Yeah, (laughs) not one. No, I just want one little piece of it. No, you can pick any four, and they they just put it on a big old piece of butcher paper on a big metal sheet pan, and slide it to you. I've made that mistake. I've had brisket in Texas, and then went to Kansas City and made the mistake of having the brisket. They, they like their, their yeah. Kansas City barbecue up there, yeah. but it's not as good as Texas. Yeah. I'm just yeah. telling you. No, I think that's interesting. That the, uh, the When you started talking about that, I was thinking it, and I thought, I'm not going to say that. Yeah. When I lived on the coast, Georgia, yeah. I found that all of a sudden I wear my, my golf khakis mm-hmm. and my driving loafers, and no socks. You know, wear socks. Well, I don't know why. But I did it. Yeah, because it's whatever it's what you do. Right, right. And and then when I came to Texas, you know, I show up to an event with driving loafers and no socks, and people are like, "Where'd you come from, boy?" <laughs> I was like, "Oof, it's not going to work." Yeah. So now I have boots and yeah. jeans. Yeah. yeah. And well, and and part of what <laughs> the important part about that is just again is teaching people to be aware of it, to notice it. Yeah. Because it's not actually sometimes good people or bad. think that you're like, oh, well, you're just yeah. not being no. true to yourself, and you're no. not. It's like, no, no I'm. You're, you're moving into a community of people, yeah, yeah. and if you're going to be in with the people, yeah. but you're going to look like you're from Mars, yeah. at some point, it's not a... It, I, don't think it's a I don't think it's a bad thing. Yeah. I think it is an, it's, it's a, it's a climate... What do you call it? Acclimation yep. type thing. So the question then for us... And is, then when I go back to Georgia, yep. to the island, I don't wear my boots. Yeah. They don't translate well. <laughs> well, the other part to think about is then the church is meant to be a culture that is meant to enculturate us in the ways of Christ. And then we start realizing how many of our churches have been enculturated into the ways of our culture. Yeah. And so, you know, that the whole five first five the letters to the seven churches in Revelation are a lot about that. Mm-hmm. So, for us to spend time really paying attention to um, knowing these pa- these things are very powerful require us to be reflective and intentional about choices we make. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Churches have made a decision. I, I call them, I, I use the word activist. I don't think activism mm-hmm. is a bad thing, but I think it was an old Willimon term, yeah. and they've picked an ideological pathway. Mm-hmm. So you look at a church, this guy in Dallas, right, who has this church, and it's, I mean, I don't really think there probably is any Democrat in that church. Yeah. I don't know how there would be. Yeah. Um, just because, and they're very intentional about yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, They'll have Republicans speaking mm-hmm. and preaching yeah. and talking, yeah. and and then there are other churches that I don't think there are really any. I don't think Republic, there's any Republicans that would yeah. go there, and if they were, they're not going to tell anybody. Yeah, you know. Well, and this is one of the parts that that has become more apparent during the pandemic. And the group that I work with has named it this way, kind of like what you just said earlier, similar. But they've said most of us now recognize that our faith is downstream from our politics. 
that our deepest beliefs are really wrapped up in our kind of the way we see the world and the way we resonate politically, that our faith is downstream. We used to think that our that our faith, you know, our faith would change our politics. So the fact that you have anybody yeah. coming to you saying, my faith is changing it, is profound. Yeah. But to recognize how, there are these other forces mm. and and that that we are actually shaped by them. And that so the forces aren't necessarily bad, but whatever you put the cucumber in, it's going to, it's going to pickle it. (laughs) And that's why I think the churches, um, they use the term like nationalism. mm -hmm. That's like a a big thing means different things to many different people, but churches that have, that are so tied into Mm -hmm. the politics and Mm -hmm. the power, we have to elect this person, even though I might not like him personally, we have to elect him because we have to have certain kinds of judges Mm -hmm. to be able to enact and protect our, and there was an author who said, you know, we chose Christianity in America, we chose effectiveness over excellence. Hmm. We wanted to win. We wanted yeah. to power. The yeah. only way we could keep Christianity, um, you know, effective in the world is to fight the slide, mm-hmm. get the politicians in at all costs. Mm-hmm. And that's not what Christianity is about. Mm-hmm. That's something, but that's not that's not a yeah. Jesus message. Yeah. Well, and the very fact that you're sitting here talking to me about this, you know, you probably have people in your congregation that would prefer you never to bring it up. Mm-hmm. Because there is an unspoken thing in the United States, particularly, that our faith should be separate than our, from our politics, even though we all know it's really not. There are lots of places in the world they wouldn't even imagine that. So, like when I go to, like I went to Scotland, and I was ministering over there right around the Brexit days, and it was so interesting just to hear Christians that I was with asking me questions about American politics that they literally couldn't understand. Like, and I'm not even trying to make a political statement here. Like stuff like, because we're Christians, we want single payer health care. Like Christians support nationalized health programs because that's what it means to be a Christian. And I mean, look at it. He's looking at me like, isn't it true that in your days, Christians actually really like to have like PPOs? <laughs> like, like, your own like, work, like, work like, right? get your insurance from the work. Yeah. And like, the fact that you have... So many, how many percentage of yeah. children that don't have right? It was know, it was such a. Care. They looked at me like, like they couldn't understand it. And I, and you know, of course, any of those questions are very complicated, and so you have to you know peel them back yeah. and talk about what they represent and all that. But the very fact that they, the way they looked at me is like I just don't understand. Christians in our culture support this kind of medicine because we think that's Christian, and I'm like, oh yeah, the very the Christians are actually. This is the thing I think yeah. I, I saw someone on. Uh, Twitter, I don't know them, um, out, out West, you know, where everyone is liberal exactly. and made some point about, somebody made a point about bipartisan churches, mm-hmm. churches that have, that are, that are yeah. broad and bipartisan. And he made the comment about, yeah, if you're, well, if you're running a bipartisan, then you're not really standing up for the real issues uh-huh. that matter to Jesus and everything. Yeah. It was just like a trashing yeah. of, you know, again, yeah. the, like one lane. There's yeah. only one way There's to do this. There's only one way to do it. And what, what I've tried to do here is to tell people, like even around the issue around same-sex marriage, mm-hmm. there's a, there's a, there's, you don't have to agree with someone else. There's going to be yeah. different ways of reading and interpreting the scripture. Yeah. You don't have to change your belief. You don't have to change your practice. But what we have to do is be able to move over to your brother or your sister and say, share with me how you get 
to that position reading the scripture. I want to learn. Not and well, we don't do that because we come in, we just want to fight. Right. We just want to convince you why you're wrong. And the more that I've spent time in it, I I see, all right, let me tell you how people who can be very traditional in their Mm -hmm. theology can now read the scripture and see something different. And that's hard for people to, to to um, experience because yeah. we don't listen well. Right. Uh, well, what, so one of my friends runs an organization he started called House United. It's built on the model of John seventeen. Um, they'll you know they'll know they're we're Christians by the way we overcome our divisions, and it's built on uh, Lincoln's word that words that a house divided cannot stand. He's in Austin, Texas. He's down in Austin, and he basically up what he Austin. does up, okay. in, up in Austin from here, right? He's in Austin, and he basically helps churches overcome the red blue divide. He does a devotional every day that people can like sign up for and they can where he'll say here's what the scripture says and those of you who tend to be kind of red you might think this way and blue might think this way what would it be like for you to see the see the church is coming together. Mm. And it's really been his pop project and he himself is a I mean he, he's got a PhD from Yale wow. and he was a U, UCC minister but he started in a really fundamentalist place and he's not angry about his fundamentalism. He mm-hmm. actually has this deep love. He, he said that one of the things he often does is goes into more progressive churches and says, you know, evangelicals understand the scriptures really, really well. It'd be good for us to be in Bible studies with yeah, them. Yeah. Like, he'll, like he'll have these, this, and that work is really about bringing people together. And it's been, it's been really fascinating to watch where he gets asked to do. It has to work both ways yeah. because, you know, people who are more conservative and read the scripture, it's just like, it's just what it says. That's yeah. it. Yeah. And I think it has to work from the people who are more progressive yeah. and to look at people who are more traditional or more conservative. And instead of going straight to, well, you're a bigot or you're a homophobe or you're mm-hmm. whatever, to have a respect of, I read this scripture yeah. and I come to this place. Yeah. And I do think that people have to be loving of everyone and treat mm-hmm. everyone kind. But most of the people that are in that sphere that I know yeah. are those kinds of people. Yeah. And... So it's got to work both ways. And yeah. sometimes I think people who are more conservative feel like they just get lumped yeah. or yeah. attacked into a corner because they read a passage of Scripture and they have a position yeah. and they believe it, yeah. and everyone else looks at them and goes, yeah. you know. Well, that's what Alan Hilton does with his House United. He literally brings people together around the Scriptures. Let's, let's just start figuring out how to read them together. Yeah. Read them through other eyes. Listen to how people say, well, how do you read that passage? Um, one of my friends who's a scholar at Baylor, she put on Facebook, uh, Angela Gorell is her name. She put on Facebook. Name dropper. I know. I just, I just like my friends to be on there. <laughs> she, she's a, a ministry professor at Baylor. She, um, she put on Facebook, like, what is a scripture that, you, that troubles you? And people put all kinds of them up there. I put, the one that troubles me is the one that most, in, most inspires me. It's Paul saying, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Yeah. I said, that only is both inspiring and troubling to me every single time. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Love is the way the yeah. Christian life. Yeah. And humility. And humility is the way. Is how we achieve yeah. it. Yeah. That's no. awesome. Um, last thing. Okay. And then we'll, we have to go to Ash Wednesday mm-hmm. uh, service. The future is here. It's just on the margins. Yeah. So what's hard when you've been in the dominant culture, right? And I often, you know, this is where I often tell tell a bit about my story. 23 years old, I'm working for Youth for Christ, and I get invited by Hollywood Presbyterian Church, which had at one time been the largest Presbyterian church in the country. I was there when it was about about 4,000 members instead of its 9,000 it had been at one time. 
they invite me on their staff and they say, we're going to send you to seminary and we're going to pay for it. They gave me a full ride scholarship and because they did, I was able to get a PhD because I didn't have any debt. The reason why people like me are at the top of institutions like Fuller is that 30 years ago, we were privileged. So we're in the center of this conversation. We, ex we have the most to lose. We have the most, we, the, the world should work for us. The margins are all these places where God is actually deeply at work, but we're not paying attention. So what we saw in the subways of Ukraine was so far out of our consciousness. Mm -hmm. Orthodox Christians singing praise songs. Did we, most of us didn't even know they existed. And there they didn't were. Didn't even know they were Christian. Right, didn't he, right. So, so what I really do believe is when you look for the spirit, you get out of the center and you go to the margins. And that's margins is our way of thinking about ourselves where we're, for them, it's the center of their lives, but you go yeah. to the margins. So, so this is the thing. I, I said this in Georgia last week. This is the thing that always gets me in trouble. Here's the line. It's a truth story. Sociologists will tell us if you study why the United States, which is losing religiosity, it's, mm -hmm. it's declining in spirituality. We're now below 50% yeah. people who consider themselves members. We're still more spiritual, more Christian, more religious than Europe. If you ask the number one reason why, the answer is immigration. Christians come to this country, hmm. and particularly Pentecostal Christians come to this country. So one of the things I said at a Pentecostal college is, most of you are going to go home to congregations where the, you think the big challenge threat to our country is immigration. Immigration could be our, we got to grapple with the fact that it's Christians who come to this country. Hmm. And most of them are bringing vibrant faith that has been endured. They've been refugees. They've prayed their way out of these countries into ours. Yeah. That, that will mess with us. Hmm. Uh, and that's the picture in many ways of where the spirit of God is already at work that I believe we're called to be humble enough to listen to and bring into the future is going to call us into that world. That's awesome. He's so smart. <laughs> Jeff's just nodding. Exactly. Man, I'm glad you're here. Thank you. It's nice to be We're going here. to go get some hashes on. Good deal. Head. Good deal. Good. And work on our humility. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, anything else, Jeff, we want to, we need to say or promote or, Oh, yeah. Tell people where they can find you, Todd. Well, you said you can Google me. Um, you can't without a shirt. Yeah, 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 exactly. He's you, riding a horse right yeah. next to Vladimir Putin. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Most of my work you can find in at my website, aesloanleadership.com, A-E-S-L-O-A-N, leadership.com. That's where our consulting work is held, housed and held and stuff. It's great. It's good yeah. stuff too. It's been very helpful for us I'm glad. at Chapelwood, and we're kind of through a first phase and yeah. going into a next phase. And oh, it's a exciting. great gift to work with y'all. It's really fun. Well, it's really, really fun. Well, I'm John Stevens, and I'm Todd Bolsinger, and this is Pod Have Mercy. Mm -hmm.